Hello everyone, welcome. This is Quantum Nurse and I am Grace Asagra, your Holistic Registered Nurse. So welcome to all the listeners and viewers because today we're going to have an intense conversation with Alison McDowell. And so what I wanted to let the viewers know is this would be a live stream that if you have questions about what's happening with the children, what's happening with the future of the children as also what's happening now the future of the children and also what's happening with our future because as elders going to that elders we always say that the future our future depends on the children but what is really happening and what can we do to change the course and also, since Allison is uh, have that history or background of um, education in history and art, we're we are going also to be reminded to know what history, what history did we have to look into, and how can we learn from that history? Because many times, as if we have forgotten the past, and like uh as if what's happening today is different or or let me just say isolated and right. like it just happened overnight right so i welcome allison mcdowell and she really is a mother just like you and others and me and i'm a grandma and she is as i said she her education background is art and history so now i know that having that background for me that is an intense study because when you study art and history it's very global yeah. that's how i look at it so mm -hmm. i don't underestimate artists i don't underestimate people who have that background because you know for listening to you allison it's that type where you could be in a camping ground or at midnight which i have experienced in the philippines being in some underground movement you can just study and study and never sleep because it's a history right. that we never even heard and and if i i used to say when i was in the philippines allison that if this is the kind of history that is being taught in school history will be my favorite subject so oh. thank you for coming oh. here okay so, oh well i'm i'm really looking forward to it thank you so much for including me so um when i wanted to go straight to what is close to my heart i have two grandchildren they're four and six now so before i used to see them and um they're with me because they said as a grandma, uh, I can share to them a lot, especially my culture. So I used to take them to New York and be with part of this uh, Filipino group. And it's the group also. And so I'm, you know, I want them to listen. Hopefully it's the group who also works on the preservation of that culture in Mindanao, which is the South of okay. the Philippines, where there's a lot of forever unrest forever and ever. And that's also the island where we, our natural resources is full of gold and other mm -hmm. things, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's also the most populated area of Muslim tradition. So, wow. you know, it's, oh, that's it's amazing. Very... I didn't know that history for okay. you. Yeah, that's really important. Mm -hmm. In that, right. So that's why, please tell 
us what well, you could start anywhere as long as you know bring it back first to my children right <laughs> well so um so i think these days people are more aware of concerns around like digital technology and devices and the ways in which uh, like all people but particularly children are being sort of subsumed within these technological spaces and the impact of that on their emotional health and you know even their their physical health and um yeah, also the health of the planet because these devices are actually pulled out of precious minerals minerals and metals that are running the, the cobalt and the lithium some of which are actually mined by children you know in, in other countries and so there's a process in which we are sort of being contained and especially the children because this new future that some very powerful people are imagining a future where our body is what we're talking about a legacy system my friend paul talks about as a like that they want to imagine that we will no longer need bodies that we will just exist as some sort of digital thought process um which sounds really crazy, but it's called transhumanism. And increasingly, it's not something that people would choose that, but we're being driven in that way because the data that is being aggregated on us is almost being used to create a virtual twin of people that will live in these cyberspaces. And those of us who have been around the block for a while, like we're not gonna be inclined to want to do that. Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we, we know what the real world is. We know what a real hug is. We know what it is to eat good food and to, you know, put our hands in the soil and to do all of these things. And so for them to succeed in this, really what I consider an imperial project or a colonial project of colonizing our very bodies is to capture the youngest ones to capture them and put them sort of in a bot of technology so that they don't have access to any of those things that we came up with, right? They don't, they don't know what it's like to play in a sandbox or go to the beach or to walk on a trail or to, you know, grow a tomato plant. Like it, it, it'll all be virtualized as a game in this digital space. And so they're trying to condition the children to that. And, you know, that is coming through, you know, at home, increasingly through educational settings, especially with the last year, so many of the kids have been sort of stuck in Zoom boxes and doing apps and devices of, of narrowing their world into something that can be mediated through technologies. And, um, you know, to me, it's, it's very sad. And it's interesting that you had mentioned about the mining and the gold, like mineral resources, is that my the lens that I use to think about this is very much that we're on a threshold of having to decide if we are going to connect our lives, our, you know, our life energy into a natural energetic system that is once something that is connected in a webs of relationship, not just among people, but people to the earth, to the microbes, to the fungi, to the trees, to the mineral beings, like an animist view of the world in which um, as Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a, a, a wonderful, biologists with the Sunni system um, and she's citizen Potawatomi nation. She says, you know, people are the younger siblings and we're, we should really be humble and listen to the other beings in the world because we really don't know what we're doing very well. And we get in and muck things up. And so there's this path that would say, yes, we are siblings. We should be humble. We should be respectful of these relationships that is part of a larger cosmology of the world. 
and that's one route. And then there's another path that is we're in charge. We know best. Progress is always best. Technology, you know, advances in technology, you know, is is what should be aspirational. And we should seek to remake the living systems into fit this um, world of electrical engineering. But it's engineering. It's not a sacred. It's not a sacred operation of the world, something that is, is sacred in and of itself outside of humans. It's something that we would channel into an electrical engineering process. And so, you know, Winona LaDuke, she talks about the two paths, right? The, the, the green path, the, the path that is green and the path that is is burned over, right? And, and uh, scorched. And, you know, who knew that this was going to be the year that we would have to really face up to what this was, these two paths, because the path the worldview that we adopt will not just be for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, but potentially as these technological systems are becoming micro, micro, micro down to a nano level, um, down to nano robotics that, that operate on principles that aren't even normal. Our understanding of physics, our current understanding of physics are not the same at this nanotechnology level that we could be remaking life um, to a man-made structure as software that you know the moderna they talk about it, their their rna platforms being the software of life that's just a very different thing and that's a choice that if we go down that road that it will affect even those who are not yet born so i don't know if that sort of speaks to that a little bit about the the children but you know i feel like you know almost a year into you know this this circumstance that we're living through right now that adults really have to reflect on themselves and the, the choices that they're making because the choices they're making affect the children, right? And I, I feel like in many respects, a year has been stolen from all of us. But when you're a young person, when you're three years old, five years old, one year of your life is a, is a huge percentage of your life to be living in fear and trauma and a disconnection from larger communal systems. And so I think you know, the adults in the world really need to to take stock of which path we're on, you know, because it matters and it matters for the kids, you know, specifically. I'm glad you st we started with that subject matter because it's for me growing up in the Philippines and really growing up without television. So it was all it was like a, it's too different. And I'm so immersed in nature. And that's why. And thank my son at some point he's grown now of course that's his that's their father so he said that they want them to be to spend more time with me because they're the wife the mother is proud of how my son is so that yeah. that's really a good thinking right because it's the influence of the parent and then the mother so it it, it it's, and the elders right and you and that as as someone right. with life experience right right yes and thank you for mentioning that word elder because in in fact as you know and even here there are some families with multi-generational way of living in one home right and right. but now it's just all tricky to have that multi-generational you know um day-to-day -day frequency of communication and relationship and um and and it's it's mind-boggling of why we just kind of like allow that to happen and some parents um i i want to see more parents and mothers to speak up 
you know, and if, if, in fact, when a teacher asked me today what's happening for March for my podcast, I, I asked her, I said, do, does any of your teachers want to come? And we can do a live stream. We'll just have a conversation that everyone can hear. Right. So, but basically, you know, that's my approach as well. Uh, but when you mentioned about the games, because of course they said the games are educational. Right. So what do you know of the, your research about those games and just the gaming industry? And what I think I've heard you and other people talking about the badge. Okay, that I don't really funny. understand that, but it's like, it's like a prize. It's right. nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a lot of this, you know, the way, the way I talk about it is, is looking at markets and understanding the economics. Because if you, if you consider what's unfolding, it doesn't seem to necessarily make sense unless you look at it within the logic of a global marketplace and globalization. And the understanding that Eric Schmidt, who was the former chair of Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, you know, he says data is the new oil. So it's very important to understand that our our bodies with wearable technology, our minds, our social interactions, if they can be captured into the system and turned into data, that becomes value for companies, not just in the data itself, but in the way it's being used to drive sort of innovative systems of financial products that I can talk about a little bit later. But the data is the new oil is important because really our bodies, like John, John Trudell used to say, you know, we're, we're a shape of the earth. Like we're made of the minerals of the earth, you know, and the stars, like we are that. And they want to mine that. And so I just came back from, from Utah, from Salt Lake City, and I was talking with families out there because again, family is very important to them and the intergenerations and their culture is very important to them. And I said, you know, the, the internet that is the backbone of this mining enterprise, this mining of life that is coming, that is upon us, was built largely before fiber. Now we're moving to fiber, but was on copper. And they had these giant copper mines, these giant open air copper mines that were just gouged into the earth. You know, you can see them from space. And that mining of the earth, that harm to the earth is then transmuted into the creation of this infrastructure that then is going to mine us. You know, so it's a cycle of a, a monetary cycle. So these new financial systems that are built up are built to to keep people in virtual worlds and to encourage them to consume because really we are creatures we have been made into creatures of consumption right acquisition mm -hmm. we buy things we um many people create their identity by the things they have right like the clothes you wear or the car you drive or the you know it's it's a consumer-based culture and our planet is finite in terms of the amount of resources. We're hitting a point that you can't, not everybody can have hundreds of shoes and, you know, the hundreds of things. And so they're pushing children to consume, but consume in a virtual space. And so increasingly in classroom settings, they have behavior management um, 
programs that are cartoons and games where you get points for good behavior that then you can buy things, but they're virtual items. You'll have a little cartoon character that represents yourself, these avatars, and you can buy things with good behavior points. You can buy outfits and things, but it's all virtual. It's all in this game. So your behavior becomes part of the game. It's both in the real world and in the online gaming space where you exist as an avatar, you exist as a cartoon. So increasingly in the educational technology space, um, everything is tied to test scores. And that's how I came into it because I was seeing that they were using data analytics in the schools, not to help children, but to create profit for computer companies and software companies and surveil children and actually create almost like child labor camps, you know, in the schools through these devices and through these Chromebooks. But then they were using the data that they collected to actually harm schools and close them. So in Philadelphia, they closed 23 schools in 2013 and then put in more technology, right? So they, they disrupt everything and they put more technology and they wanted to get the data to show growth and to show improvement as if meaningful education can be showed by getting a better score on a math game. Right. And I still remember and I didn't have the context to appreciate it at the time. But when my child was in elementary school and they would have, you know, this school wide math competitions, but it was online and it was gaming and then they would have the scores. And so that was being reinforced, this competition, the scarcity that you matter because you are a number and here's your leaderboard. It's this idea that is going to be coming that we must comp compete not only for for resources, for accolades, for the ability to support ourselves with people in our immediate environment, like our classroom, but for people around the world. We're all competing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a sentiment of scarcity and competition, not of abundance and collaboration. And that's what the games are meant to instill is this competition and that you acquire points and in that your identity is constructed and how well you do inside the game. But it's not your game. And that's the thing it's really important for people to know is that um, there's a professor here in Philadelphia where I live, um, Wharton Business School is the business school for the University of Pennsylvania. And he's sort of an esteemed professor of business and his name is Kevin Werbach and he has two specialties. One is gamification and one is blockchain, which is what's going to track you in the game and track your digital assets in the game. And the gamification piece, he was speaking to um, Wharton alumni and people who are part of this, um, you know, the, the larger Wharton sphere to give, you know, a talk about his um, his work. And he said, you know, a lot of times you might not even realize you're in a game and the rules mm -hmm. can be surprising and you may not even know what all the rules are. So really, ultimately, it's always better to be the person making the rules of the game. And so that's what we're doing to our children is we are feeding them into games that are not their games. It's a game someone has made for them that is intended to shape them and mold them in a certain way. And there's an illusion of choice in the game. There's choice architecture, this binary ones and zeros, but it always loops around to the end point of wanting to conform you into what the game feels you should be. And it's only as a designer of a game that you actually have a say. And so, you know, the, the compulsory education system, which is what I've come to realize you know, in retrospect, is really meant to feed children into the needs of industry 
And it, it moved the children from the farms into the factories and then it moved them from the factories into retail or corporate cubicles or then into call centers or and the next version is that the robots you know they imagine these billionaires the the gates uh, benioff bloomberg you know they're imagining a world where robots and avatars do a whole lot of the work so what are children meant to grow up into what do they get to aspire to be if the doctors are all avatars on a tablet if the teachers are all, you know, little chatbots, if the people who are taking care of the elderly are, you know, robots too, or social robots. I mean, they have this in Japan, they're really moving mm -hmm. forward. What do you aspire to in your life? Because even if they're offering people UBI, which is this sort of token thousand dollars a month kind of payment, that doesn't give you direction. That doesn't give you agency. You're still stuck in somebody else's game. But the, the gaming conditions the kids to the competition and that you don't have the agency, um, that you're just expected to do the next thing you're told to do and not to look farther. And, um, you know, I think that's a real shame. And to be disconnected to, you know, it feeds into the American ideal of bootstrapping, of being an individual operator, that everybody's sort of their own brand and their own free agent in this world but they are most able to engineer people when they're isolated in worlds, not when they're part of teams, not when they're part of extended families, not when they're part of communities that are collaborating. And so the extraction process, the data extraction process is most efficient when everyone is isolated. And that's when the data mining happens and that's when the engineering happens is when you are, can be isolated. It's like, you know, the weak in the pack, you know, they call you out and sort of, you know, then they, they pray. That is the way that the process works. And right now the children are the most vulnerable and they don't have the life experience or the knowledge to really have a good understanding of the consequences of what they've been thrown into. Thank you for that. And that kind of reminds me of the word indoctrination as well, because that's the word that I, I, I learned early on, on my young age in the Philippines. And that's when I opened up my eyes as well, because with the history of the Philippines of 400 uh, colonization of the Spaniards plus other things. And, you know, how did they make that possible is a lot of indoctrination in a subtle ways of slowly rubbing your culture, your, right. you know, like your ways of writing, your ways of relating to people. And so that's what's happening. And when you said about the behavior, it's interesting because in the indigenous tradition, behavior, that's what we're always taught to mind our behavior, the behavior that uplifts us, the behavior that connects us to the source. But this one is the behavior that connects the data, the behavior that right. You know, to, the, to the globalists. And when I say the globalists, I remember also, you know, that, um, um, and because I also wanted to us to talk about, um, again, coming from the Philippines, that, you know, we're a third world country or a developing country. But so it's it's kind of like we we have so much poverty going on as well as there's so much poverty in in, in Philadelphia and a number of cities here, right, in in United States. So with, with that poverty, we we get attracted to mm. non-government organizations right very much so so, so <laughs> now so now and because of that it seems like you know the people um whom the, the organizations that i 
I was supporting before. I could not support them be lately, fully lately. I still belong with them because I they are my people, but I cannot fully support because they they don't see the relationship. They don't seem to connect it to the past of that indoctrination and subtle, subtle, just like changing your ways and your mind and seeing this this is the picture that you see this is what you know this is very nice and when and just like when you're talking explaining all of this it seems like everything on the surface looks so good i know it does look so good and that's why i keep thinking you walk out the door and it still seems like a normal world only when you know what's going on underneath it's really unsettling and you know, I would say so. That I, I read a really good book a few years ago. Um, it's by a gentleman. His name is Daniel Immerwar, and it's called "How to Hide an Empire." And so, what what his focus was was initially in the early part of the book of talking about the inland empire of the colonization of the West and the settler colonization of the displacement of indigenous people and the you know, subsuming indigenous people within sort of this manifest destiny program. But then it went on to look at many um, military outposts of the US government as imperial and, and territories and these territories. And so one of the elements that was brought in was talking about the Spanish American war and the use of the, these reconcentration camps, which was essentially an extension of how they treated indigenous people to put like dispossess them off the land and then put them under state control in ways that made it very difficult to maintain culture maintain relationships and family and traditions and so you know understanding that history of these the camps in that where people were fighting for their liberty outside of them that they would hold in communities hostage and enact sort of some brutality against people to contain people who would like speak for that larger, you know, indigenous cultures. And so, you know, I think these issues of history of understanding erasure of culture, containment of people, reducing people's agency around their own economic independence, um, and especially around people's children is, is really important. So, um, you know, I, 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 there are aspects of that that I think resonate forward. And when people talk about what's happening as digital slavery, it, it definitely is enslavement, this history of the doctrine of discovery. But there's also the, um, the residential schools, the boarding schools that were used to, um, you know, enact a lot of trauma and break up families, indigenous communities. And, you know, as we approach <clears throat> what's coming as globalization, this next phase that's coming in that's tied to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which if people are not familiar, they might presume that's all wonderful, right? Like we wanna mm -hmm. be sustainable. We'd like to you know, live in right relationship, but it isn't actually that because if you look into it further, it really is about channeling capital into financializing nature and financializing the poor. Um, most of these sustainable development goals have to do with managing impoverished people through the NGOs that you're talking about, through healthcare, through education, through hunger management, through humanitarian aid. And I put that in air quotes because they're trialing a lot of these programs in digital identity and um, device-based learning in you know, so-called developing countries, in countries that have been intentionally underdeveloped so that the resources can be extracted for more affluent communities and you know driven by silicon valley and then they're being reharmed with 
things that are essentially ostensibly labeled helping, but it's all about data aggregation tied to six, um, pay for success deals, which I can talk about a little bit more if you want, but these development impact bonds, social impact bonds, pay for success finance, it's about improving people on a dashboard as data. And that's what a lot of the educational technology systems are that we are seeing in the even in the US schools because the programs that were prototyped in the global south, in Africa and India and in you know, Bangladesh and Indonesia and different places are now boomeranging back and being used against the domestic poor here in the United States and in the United Kingdom and in Australia and Canada. So it's, it's a colonial project that is now global. And so I, my positioning on this is that when we talk about behavior, their goal is really to create a universal global citizen, right? That everyone behave, that operates from the same framework of globalization as determined by a billionaire class that holds all of the assets. And my framework is what is happening is happening around the world, but we should both respect each other's cultures and we should like have a global peace movement against artificial intelligence and the takeover of humanity, respecting each other's cultures, but then asserting that people should have control of what happens in their own communities. You know, and, and so it's it's not a nationalist framing, it's more that we should be thinking broadly that not everyone, you know, equity doesn't need to mean that everyone is a cookie cutter of a global citizen, right? And we can fight that without saying that we are anti other people. We can all be our own people and, and, and celebrate our own cultures and our own heritage and, and, and do that in a way that is supports each other in accomplishing that, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. And yeah, uh, please uh, speak anything more about finances, please ex uh, you know, continue to sure. share that because you know, it, we need money we need finances we need we need to do that to operate your lives and then that sustainable goals which i got fooled also with united nations because all the wording sounds it's very really good. very good right. so you know as a nurse and someone said hey let's go and support sustainable 2020 you know but right. then the poverty never really leaves it's even getting worse and now more than ever it's like we're, you know, if we don't change the course, there we are. Right. It's, it's like, well, so. and people can see over the past year who has benefited economically from the policies that have been not just in our government, but around the world, right? It's a very small number of m mostly tech finance and tech individuals. And so people need to look more into um, the role of the IMF, the role of the World Bank, the role of debt controlling that allows sort of these larger colonial projects to control and exert undue influence over other people's uh, policy, which, you know, we were seeing when people who were trying to make other choices for their countries that wasn't in alignment with the World Health Organization, that the debt, you know, was then they were sort of slapped down around the, the structural adjustment and the debt. Um, and so, the remaking of the world according to these goals is really about enabling new debt products to be sold through mm -hmm. the whole thing, tied to education and tied to healthcare. And because it's all based on analytics and increasingly the, the ways in which data is collected, it's just almost astronomical because it's not just on a phone or on a tablet or on a laptop. It's going to be 
wearable technology, a brainwave headband, a smart shirt, smart mm. sensors in your shoes, nanorobotic biosensors in your body. This data, they, they talk about the, the World Economic Forum talks about the internet of bodies. And so we're gonna be just exuding data, not because it makes us healthier or happier, but because it actually creates markets for these financial instruments. So I will say, let me just give an example in education, because you know we're talking about the kids again and how some things on the surface sound good until you dig in and then you realize, oh, is this what you actually meant? <laughs> so education is United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 4. So 4 is education. Um, they're particularly interested in early learning and workforce development. So these are two areas that they're developing debt products around. Uh, they talk about universal pre-K, which sounds good. Like we know mm -hmm. many families, have both parents have to work. You know, if you have a two-parent household, both parents are working. Sometimes they're working multiple jobs. People are very stretched and having access to childcare is a big part of a family's budget, right? Like what, what you know, how do you find a good place to put your ch child? So universal pre-K sounds like a great option. The finance instrument that they've de developed to fund this is called um, pay for success, social impact bonds, and it's tied to equations. And so these equations essentially profile children as burdens on society. You know, and this is my fundamental problem when we're talking about which path, the green path or the scorched path. Do we look at children as gifts and mm -hmm. the community that should be nurtured and cherished and let to become their best selves? Or do we look at, do we take the scorched path and we say, well, this kid is probably gonna be in addiction and underemployed and mentally ill and hungry. And it's two different worldviews, but for the financiers, for Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase, they need to see this child as a burden. They need this child to be on the scorched mm. path because they can only make money on these investment products that they're designing if they can say, we made their path a little less scorched. There's no profit, there's no ability for them to continue to aggregate their money if children are okay to begin with. It's This whole program is based on harm and trauma and misery and poverty. So these pay for success deals with the equations say, uh, for example, one of them, the first one for pre-K, it's based on a cost offset. And you say, I'm going to screen this child with a tool, this group of children, I'm gonna identify the ones that fit the program and we're going to fund pre-K for them. And we're not gonna do it just because it's the right thing to do. We're gonna do it because if we can stop them from needing special education, we're saving the government money. And we're gonna negotiate some of that money as our profit. And so that's what they did in Salt Lake City where I went, they were the first universal pre-K social impact bond and Goldman Sachs funded it. Goldman Sachs is, is an industrial bank you know, and Utah has the most industrial banks. So Goldman Sachs funded this pre-K mm -hmm. program. And at the end of the 100 children who were in the program, only one qualified for special education. And even in the New York Times and the Chronicle of Higher Education or Chronicle of Philanthropy, they were like, this doesn't make sense because if these children were really at risk, it wouldn't be the only one out of the 100 would need services. Like that's an unrealistic success. Um, now, Goldman Sachs maximized the amount of money that they got out of that. But either they were pulling in children that didn't need, um, wouldn't have needed special education, maybe they were English language learners, or um, these were children who were being denied services. 
but there was something not right with that equation. And those of us who are working in the education space, we know that numbers are often gained to serve mm -hmm. people in positions of power. The numbers are gained, the test scores are gained, gamed, the re school report cards are gamed, everything is gamed to serve those who are in power. So, so this is the social impact bond and, and the equation for it was developed by someone named Jim Heckman. And he's um, one of the Chicago boys, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago. And he was funded by George Soros and Open Society and also J.B. Pritzker, who's now the governor of Illinois. And they did a sort of a junket up and down the state of California, pitching to foundations this idea that you could get a seven to 10 percent rate of return on funding preschool. And you could get it to 13 if you got health data. So that's where all the wearable technology and the smart playgrounds are going to come in. Is they're, they're going to get the health data too to push it to 13 percent, which is a respectable return for like a foundation or you know a conservative thing like 13% is not bad so everyone is excited but what heckman said was we can't improve cognitive data so if you go by iq the iq hardens up by the age of like 8 to 10 and that doesn't move for these because you need growth you need them to look a certain way on a dashboard as data not as individual children just as groups of numbers and that didn't work and so he said you know what we can change what we can change is character and that goes back to your indoctrination piece. He said, we can change character. Mm -hmm. And so now what we're seeing throughout the schools, and it sounds good, is social emotional learning. They say, look, we've harmed kids. We've just reduced education to edu reading scores and math scores. But now we care. Now we care about the whole child. We really want to know about their soft skills. We want to track that. And they want to track that because they've built impact markets, not just with Jim Heckman and the Heckman equation, but um, the Teachers College, uh, Columbia University, this my, guy named Clive Belfield, he developed a, an equation for social emotional learning specifically. And that one is an 11% rate of return. And so what we're seeing are things like PBS kids, they have these apps for preschoolers. One of them is the Daniel Tiger Tea Party game. And if you don't share your cookies properly in the Daniel Tiger Tea Party game, they'll prompt you. You didn't share your cookies right. And then, and then if you still don't, you know, then they'll, they're tracking all of this behavior to see if they can change your character to be the good citizen, according to what the game says you should be a good citizen. And even there's, there's another uh, tool that I talk about. It's called these Hatch. Hatch Education is a company based in North Carolina, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They have surveillance play tables. They call them mm. weekly part. And it's, if you picture a flat screen TV, a big one, like parallel to the floor, like in a little plastic you know, frame with two fisheye lens cameras, one on either corner, and the children are supposed to play at it together, manipulating these, not even real toys, right? They're online puzzles, mm. they're digital puzzles, and they're recorded in their social behaviors. And so those behaviors are then scored. And my sense is, is that those are feeding into these impact markets. And who even knows who's doing the scoring, if it's being done by an actual person or AI, um, you know, through visual analytics. And what, what kind of world are we picking where we put children on the scorched path so that Goldman Sachs can place a bet on how far they get on their path and they can be monitored by wearable technology and smart surveillance play tables. And this is the piece that they don't tell you when they say, oh, this is, we're going to have a sustainable world and everyone's going to be educated. What we have to deal with is the people who are running these programs are the people with all the wealth. And so, you know, there's, you know, several hundred multi times over billionaires who are hoarding wealth. 
And, you know, in, in countries that have lived through this, I keep saying, you know, we need to look for to the people who have been surviving through this for generations. <laughs> you know, we like, you know, those of us here, I fully admit, I can give you a really good intelligence briefing on how crazy this stuff is rolling out, <laughs> but I don't know how to survive it. People like people in the Philippines, people in India, people in Africa, indigenous people, black people in America, like they understand how to navigate mm. this terrain. And so that's what I'm trying to sort of catalyze this conversation is to say those histories that are we, or what we should be looking at to figure out what's next and how to protect the children. Um, because it's crazy to think that Jeff Bezos is creating Montessori pre-K now because he cares about poor children as opposed to that he's running a global police state that runs on data. You know, <laughs> I don't know. But, but, no, I mean, but I have to believe, and like I said, I went to Utah and, you know, we probably have very different politics, but I have to believe that there's fully like probably 99.5% of the people on the earth that if they knew that this was the plan and they knew that we could collectively resist it would resist. And the problem is, is that we have been put in our own individual little games on our own little individual scorched over pathways and, and put, given a shove, given a behavioral economic nudge and told to be gritty and resilient. And we need to find each other. Like we need to find each other and we need to find each other both knowing the harm of the history, but also knowing the stories of indigenous resurgence, indigenous like resistance, those cultural, that is the stuff that we have to rekindle. And again, it's not mine to own. I'm not saying I'm here to try to appropriate someone else's story, but like I truly believe that that is the that is what we should be looking to. Yes, it is. I, I agree with you. As as long as uh, the people who belongs to that who have that history should really open up their eyes and remember and just kind of like connect it. It's what do they say? It's a same playbook, but yes. maybe. Maybe slightly different players, but yes. it's just you know that's why when when this was announced that in March that it will be like this and it the first thing I could think of is it can't be it can't be, <laughs> can't be. and then I see that I saw it right away on, on the TV and everything and being a nurse being an insider when I had twenty years in the critical care. Um, all the things that they're saying in terms of like uh, what they had to put in the death certificates. I, I was still remembering what you said in, you know, in terms of in people who've been there through that hard time and just to remember, remember and what learn and lessons learn and, you know, just having that different playbook, right? Exactly. Well, and to know there is another playbook. And I think that's, you know, that's a struggle I have friends in, in India right now. And, you know, the, the farmers are having their huge protests against the farm bills and to sort of stand up for their, you know, the food systems, but also the land against this sort of larger international project. And, you know, I think it's a struggle because um, there are many people who, you know, aspire to success and success is often viewed as being like the West, right? Like if you're, if you become a success, it's because you're exemplifying, you know, some sort of ideal coming out of Silicon Valley or out of London or out of one of these spaces. And that isn't actually the answer. You know, in my opinion, I think a lot of this is coming out of 
like a Western way of thinking that's built on this enlightenment, but the enlightenment is based on a domination over nature and society in the name of progress. And so it's, it's, it's complicated to sort of navigate yeah. all of that, you know, in, in, you know, the, the, the global education enterprise has been to suppress, you know, ways of knowing people's cultures and to, to assert something that is a, a more, um, you know, a different paradigm, a different paradigm of learning of what it is to be in the world and then to have to back in and, and re-know that and give that back to the children. Can you talk about that uh, that moonshot thing about, you know, the Japan? <laughs> because it's terrifying. And when I'm reading it, it's the words are really looking very good, you know? Oh, like the, what the, you don't need a mind or a body, that one? I don't think oh, that looks very good. No, no, <laughs> Japan my, so maybe, Science and Technology Agency. I didn't. I didn't go. Maybe I didn't read a part that is not very good. Yeah. So, you know, as as I was saying, you know, when you don't do a lot of uh, research, seems like if you just scan it, it seems yeah. like like this one: expanding human potential for a society where everyone can pursue their dreams. Who would not want that? It's right, very right. Well, they're very good at the wording. I mean, so what I would say, so this, if people aren't familiar, and maybe like if you put it out, you could put a link to it on the in the chat. But it's a document. I, I was in touch with some teachers who are, um, uh, I think they were at an international school in Tokyo. And they said, Allison, have you seen this report, this moonshot document out of Japan? And I had, you know, I, I, I get a lot of things and I hadn't made time. So I made time to read it. And it's actually out of the Japan Science and Technology Agency. And so it's the Japanese government. And it's very important to know that, um, you know, Japan SoftBank is one of the largest, you know, banks in Japan. They're channeling a lot of money for the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund into robotics and AI. There's a Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, which is working on digital twinning. And so Japan is actually very far advanced in robotics and the idea of social robots. And they're sort of struggling with an aging population. So they're sort of imagining, I guess, these idea of social robots filling the place in for managing older people with a declining population. But they essentially have sort of framed this idea that by 2050, we, you will live without the need of a physical mind or body in time and space. And so it is again, envisioning a future of where you live as an avatar, where you live in a digital environment. It interfaces with a report about some, uh, that focuses on something called globotics, which is, you know, you'll hear a lot today about the future of work. What is the future of work? Oh, we need to have, you know, be nimble and have lots of, you know, human qualities in the future of work. Well, the future of work that they're developing with the Internet of Things through the World Economic Forum and um, you know advanced manufacturing like Ericsson and the robotics factories is that the plan is to be able to use haptic controllers and virtual reality or augmented reality headsets to operate machines that are in no place close to where you are. And what this means is that once you have a digital identity system, which is what they're rolling out now, like a blockchain identity, it may come mm -hmm. on the health passports, it may come through uh, digital credentials for college, it may come through e-government, there's a lot of different avenues that they're rolling out. 
but they're framing it as trust that you will essentially be represented as a series of transactions on a ledger of things that you attestations of things you can do, right? I can run this machine. I can push this button. I can, you know, prescribe this medicine. I can all of these little codes, but it'll be like bazillions of codes and they need this digital trust because you're going to be delivering this skill nowhere in physical proximity to yourself. And so that's what I'm talking about webs of relationship. Like what is community? Is community something where we live as cartoon figures and we meet in virtual reality headsets that is disconnected from time and space, from the earth, from natural systems, knowing that the world that has been created for this is fundamentally a military world. The internet and the cloud are military technologies that are subjected to being in a game or a hologram that you have no control over, ultimately, that the, the, the sociopath billionaires of the world are running the game in the cloud. Like, do we want to, is that where we want to be? Or do we actually want to be on land in connection with other beings in a natural system? You know, and I think, I can't say everyone's going to make the same choice, but people have to realize that is ultimately going to be the choice they're presented with. And, you know, people have seen that movie, The Matrix, right? Like, do you get unplugged? Mm -hmm. like, literally, we will just, our bodies will be husks and batteries for this avatar thing that goes roaming the world. And you're going to be roaming the world doing work, not for a living wage, not for having health care and having a nice life. You're going to be competing. It's going to be the kids in Newark, New Jersey, competing against the kids in the Philippines, competing against the kids in Poland, against the kids in Bangladesh. Like, they're all going to be competing for the lowest wage in the most precarious work. And so they'll take something, you know, like the Fukushima, right? Like, oh, look, now we need robots to go in and clean this up. And then so we mm -hmm. develop the technology of remote robotics. And then, oh, well, what else can we? We can use it for drones and bomb people remotely, right? Oh, well, what else can we do? Well, now we can deliver burritos um, in coolers where people in Bolivia are driving these remote robotics to deliver burritos to college students in Berkeley. You know, so it takes this technology and it spins it out. But now they're talking about even with people with disabilities, oh, you can be in a hospital, but you can work in a cafe in, in Tokyo through a robot. You're gonna be controlling this robot that will live your life. And, you know, they always pick a use that seems nice. Like, oh, well, it would be nice for someone who's homebound to be able to get out. But the reality is, is they're going to flip it so that anyone getting a disability payment who may have had physical limitations is now going to be expected to work in a cafe as a robot or do some other task as a robot. And in a world of automation, is that the expectation that we should treat people that way? Is that a humane way of being in the world, knowing that those who will profit most will not be the people, it will be the people who control the cloud? That's it. That is extremely crazy. And that brings me back to what well, I forgot the, the term that uh, you use to describe it or what they use in terms of education, in terms of what suddenly you're choosing a career of yours. And then that's only limited to a certain area. And then you can't even go beyond that area. So again, being in the box of that, right? And so yeah. well, that it's learned. hard because there is something called the, the, WIOA, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And that was put in place under Obama. And so essentially what it was, was to create 
regional economic systems, like to prioritize certain industries for certain geographies. And, you know, it's difficult to talk about because I think most people see that and they say, oh, well, that's communist or that's socialist, a planned economy. But the people who are actually setting up the system with the government is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You know, it is these large corporate, it is the Walmarts, it's the IBMs. They are deciding what the regional economies will be and carving it out. So it's really more akin to fascism than it's not that it's a, a regional economy that's being planned for the well-being of the people. Actually, in southeastern Pennsylvania, our um, plan, because every community is supposed to have their plan that sort of lays this out, that the high growth jobs, the, high, the sectors that are assigned to the southeastern Pennsylvania, there are only about you know, of the, the top 10 or 12 high growth jobs, one was one that paid maybe $50 an hour that was a manager, managerial class. The next was like $30 an hour for accounting. And then everything else was 15, 12 and $8 an hour. Now tell me how you live in the city of Philadelphia with a family on $10 an hour as your high growth job sector. And yet our city council was meeting, having a whole discussion around a poverty committee they weren't talking about gig labor. They weren't talking about this globotic, haptic robotics. They weren't talking about any of the pieces, the automation. You know, do we want to automate work? Do we want our children taught by robots? <laughs> because when you're talking about pathways, it's not just that the plan will be limited by geography for children. It's all about this, these career pathways. Um, and even the career and technical education, which sounds, again, refreshing to people who've been hammered on that the only way to success is a four-year college degree and going into terrible debt, then CTE sounds like a good option. But if the plan is to mostly automate all of the manufacturing jobs, is that really a good option? And then who is triaging which child onto what path? Because, you know, none of these paths are going to go many good places unless you're, you know, one of the top two jobs that can pay a living wage, all of the other ones are not. And so that's why I'm, I'm saying that it has to be a global, we have to look at things globally because if, and we have to be in solidarity with the earth and each other because the thing that is being built is actually a virtualized world that I believe feels like an anti-life program, literally a program, an anti-life program that has some really dark undercurrents going through it beyond the and, military, you know. And that's what you mentioned earlier and about the transhumanism, because it's literally taking out us out of our being human and that being human is part of divinity. So, yeah. um, and we, we haven't even touched yet that the, the, the issue about the synthetic inoculation, which is just really a genetic modification Right. Then so for those people who mothers and other activists who are uh, or who knows about the genetic modification of Monsanto, now they have progressed into trying to modify our human bodies. Yeah, I, I mean that's or you know from. Yeah, well, I think I mean the the idea of population level bioengineering, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about is population bioengineering. And once you back this up into the history, it very much is connected to eugenics. You know, this, the, the social entrepreneurs, the origins of this idea of the social entrepreneur go back to the Fabian society. They go back to the, 
actually the Labour Party, Michael Young, who is the, the, the earliest sort of the social entrepreneur of the United Kingdom, he was the thought leader for the Labour Party in the post-World War II era. They helped set up the NHS and the medical health service because the pay for success finance program to, to recreate the social welfare sector as an investment program for Goldman Sachs and UBS Bank and the Vatican and all, all of these other entities that would essentially commandeer the public sector and remake it as an investment opportunity and then track you in this investment opportunity, they needed a social welfare net, right? And so having it coming through countries that have more socialized programs isn't that surprising, which doesn't mean in any respects, I think people shouldn't have access to, to quality healthcare, but they should have a choice in what that healthcare is. And, you know, increasingly it's going to be tied to a weaponized public health system that really advantages biotech. And that's the other piece that people are not understanding as a, as a market. If we understand managing us as data is is the investment, is the business opportunity, whether that's happening in an education setting or a healthcare setting. The state of Utah has a thousand life sciences companies, a thousand. And it's not even the most populous state. They have, a th I mean, think about how many are in other states. In New Jersey, I'm sure has so many, it would be interesting to know how many life sciences companies are in New Jersey and the big pharma. So how do the, how do those companies prosper? they prosper at the sickness of the population. There isn't any yeah. other logic to it. If those companies are to be profitable, many, many people have to be sick and stay sick. You know, chronic illness is the most profitable thing that they can have, or they're going to have to make well people who are well take their products. And that's, you know, that's just the logic of what we, that's the economy we've allowed to be created. It's a death culture, and that, really. Yeah. That understanding, really, Alison, when I was still in the Philippines, was my, uh, my motivation to take care of my health, my motivation to really learn more of natural ways, indigenous ways, energy medicine ways, because I don't want to fall into the same system that made your chronic yeah. illness be profit and so of to all those whom i i always encourage to take care of themselves i always let them see if you just criticize the system and you don't know the other ways to solve the problem right. then you will end up again in the same system of yeah. that cost it um I agree. I mean, it feels like we're almost going to be moving into sort of witch hunts. I mean, but between holistic practice, because it's such a threat, not just to the profits of the health management system, but because they need everyone to be on a vaccine credential, because that's what they need for this game to play. They need to track you in augmented reality with the biosensors. To, to, to continually upgrade whatever the next injections are because that is how they will contain the populations as automation takes over the economy. And so if you're crafting a narrative that says you can exist outside of that, those people have to be rooted out by these people in power. And that's why we're seeing such a vehement pushback, I believe, is because it's not just well, that's not my choice. Maybe that's not a good choice, but live and let live. 
which you would think, you know, in the, in the United States, if people have an independence, this perception, this myth that we are independent, that you would be like, well, you're not hurting anybody else. If you want to make that choice with your health, great, go ahead. Now that actually has those people have to be ripped to shreds because if you're pre presenting an option of, um, you know, an alternative option that doesn't require a health passport that is going to be outside of these bioengineering products, that's an epistemic threat. That's a significant threat to that system. And it's a system that's grounded really very much in, you know, I think it's a biosecurity state is what we're facing. It's a militarized biosecurity state in which your body is being weaponized against you as, as that yeah. your, your body is a threat to you and your family and your community if you do not go with the protocol. And it's very worrying to me. I don't know how we got here in one year. Like, I, I just, I don't understand how this, how, I mean, I, I do, I mean, knowing the history, it's, it's not totally incomprehensible, but I thought there would be more pushback. And, and for uh, you who have been, you know, doing this activism work and it was on primarily started with the education, it, it's not, nothing surprises you anymore. You know, every week it gets more. I mean, you know, I didn't because the health stuff was pretty new to me, honestly. And I will say, you know, this global impact investment network, you know, the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation is very central to this. And I think that's pretty much embedded in in, in you know, the greater New Jersey area. Um, but data driven health, um, you know, we have. I live at the crossroads of these global issues and that become local. And so Jefferson Health. If you go to the emergency room, your doctor is going to be on a screen. Why, why would you need a doctor on a screen in downtown Philadelphia? It doesn't yeah. make sense unless you understand this new paradigm. Like I'm not in distant rural Idaho, like North Dakota. No, I'm downtown Philadelphia. Why is my doctor on a screen? And then why is it that we're that the health professionals and the teachers in such large are seeding that relation, the relationality of their profession to a screen based program? And not questioning it, not questioning the profit motive, not questioning who is who who is gaining power in the, the dynamic. Where is the power being concentrated? Um, are they losing their agency? And people, you know, I think it's because they're so fearful. They're they're not thinking out to, beyond any other question, beyond some sort of immediate protection of themselves. And it's it's, you know, I keep hoping a year in that that people will start to to reconsider. Well, what is it in our hands that we can really do so that, you know, we can add, I know this is important having this discussion where other people can share yeah. this discussion on you know, small groups, big groups. And because we need a lot of that, because yeah. I think when in, in understanding it, then we can move forward with the solutions. Um, but there's really something that we can do and we can always remember. What are, what what might you suggest, especially when they have to read or read? Because everything that you said, others may say, "Oh, where is she getting that?" Or you know, that's all like conspiracy theory. You know, that well, I would encourage. Like I know you have my my blog. I mean, everything I have is documented, and I would love to. You know, my husband's like, Allison, they're probably not going to be able to do all this. And I'm like, I hope so. But you know what? Those of us who know what they're talking about have a responsibility to to tell people because how will it not happen if people don't know? So I would love to be proven wrong that this doesn't happen. I would, you know, that would be great. <laughs> I would really like that, but I, I feel responsible knowing 
that I have to tell other people. And you make your own judgment. Everybody, I mean, I'm not here to say you have to follow which path you should pick. I'm saying you should, you should have informed consent and you should understand the larger context. And I have a, a slightly different way of looking at it than a lot of people because I, I really do feel that it is about um, being either in right relationship to the earth and natural systems and trying to heal within the space of empire, like an imperial history, a colonial history, and the implications of that, and that we come out the other side stronger and more unified. Or there are people who, who you know, may just take the mainstream path. But I'm just asking people to, 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 to think about that. And as far as what people can do, I mean, I feel like there's an imperative. People want to do something now. Like they, they feel like time is running out and we have to, and I would say they want us to feel pressured that way. And I do feel like, and this might sound a little like, like what is time, right? Like I, our concept of time and physics and string theory and alternate universes, like I don't know, like that there may be other versions of this playing out in other ways that we can't see. And that might sound crazy, but the more that physicists learn about the world, the more they, the more you realize you don't know. Mm -hmm. Be they want us to rush and be not thoughtful. And I'm saying, you know, sit with this, find your place in it, find your connection. In doing that, I think you find others who are coming from a similar place, like energetically. Um, you know, I've found that the more I talk, it resonates with other people, and maybe they just didn't have the tools to look at it. And then the tool I put out is they pick it up and say. Well, it's a pretty good tool. I'd like to tweak it here and it fits me better now. And then, and then they share it. And so it's an organic process. And if we, if we rush to a quick fix, we may fix the wrong thing. And to me, the fix, it actually goes 400 years ago and understanding what is our destiny? What is our future? What is it to, like to live in the world? And are, are we living digitally? Are we living in harmony with, with natural systems? And so so being centered in your space, finding other people. I have people over for soup, you know, like once or twice a month, I'm trying to have people in person to come and just connect. And, you know, I've been doing just like little, I mean, I don't claim to be great at it, but like spiritual interventions, or I call it like revocation of consent. Like I don't consent to this. You didn't ask me. And I'm saying that I'm not doing it. And even just my one little voice, I like do Facebook lives and I go places and I say, I, I'm withdrawing my consent, you know, from this. And, and actually on Sunday, there's a, a lovely woman um, in the UK who's having sort of a program of people. And I'm going to go to Wharton Business School and I'm trying to sort of figure out my my revocation because that's where so much of this was cooked up at Wharton. And I've got like I'm thinking maybe of creating like two or two or three women, like little dolls, like felt dolls. I have a bunch of felt over in the corner of like my my living room and and some and like children. And then I have this um, here. Let me see. Show us. I have this I have this mousetrap game. <laughs> this is the gamification. Okay. Here, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you my felt like this is this is left over from one of my. Oh, I don't know. How can I can I show you? Uh Anyway, there's felt. I've got here. Wait a minute. It's like uh, anyway, I've got a lot of felt, and uh -huh. I'm gonna um, uh, sorry, someone. So anyway, I've got this felt. I'm gonna I'm gonna make some people, and um, 
And I've got this mousetrap game, which I think is really great because Kevin Werbach teaches there and he's the gamification guy. And I'm gonna say, Kevin, we didn't ever consent to be in your game, your military <laughs> game. And I'm gonna have the women because, oh, I have I have another little, um, it, it, this just inspired me. So my child, they have this little, um, this is old, but this little, this little person. And I was okay. like, oh, I'm gonna make like a little person, but fabric, because I'll oh. leave it there. And I'm gonna wrap the box in black fabric, like a negation and say, we're not being in your game. And I'm gonna put the ladies and the little children on top and leave it and then put put a little message and leave it for Wharton. See what happens. But yeah, at least you're saying we don't, we're not participating and maybe that'll cause a ripple. You know, I don't have thousands of people to organize with in Philadelphia. People still think I'm an outlier, but people know me other places and they have to, like some of this, they have to do with our participation. And so I think the education piece is really vital. Know what's happening and know why it's happening. And then once we understand it's about markets, it's about cultural erasure, it's about breaking up families, it's about removing the sacred. Once we have those, those bearings, we can come up with the solution of the world that we want. But to me, I feel like grounding it in indigenous resurgence like that's the healing part. And that's the part I can't do. I can participate in the conversation, but in many respects, those very communities, black and brown communities, communities in the global South have been so marginalized that they're not the leaders in this conversation. In fact, they're what they're asking for because they're being, the, 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 the framing is being framed that they are being attacked by the, the virus, which in some ways, you know, who knows how they're targeting bioweapons? Like, I don't know. I'm not there to diminish the harm, but they're not in a position yet mostly to actually have this starter conversation. And I, I'm hoping that that will happen, that the door will open, that that will, people will be able to step into that space and say, you know what? We know that there's no safety in empire. Like we know how this machine runs. It has never been good for people like us. And we know that there are reserves of, you know, and yet, our power is in our our culture and our heritage, and and you know we can stand with us, and then I'll be there. Yeah, that's powerful advice, and just remembering that because it it seems like um, when when uh, we can remember really all those uh, the, the strong values, the strong connection to na natural systems, as you mention it again and again is what really thrived and helped the indigenous people come get out of uh, the, those misery and the 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 people the but it seems like for me almost every culture actually all colors white black brown experience something of that sort at yeah. some part of their history yeah and if no you're can, very right if they can just we could all collectively remember Yes. And we would know, I guess, what's the common manipulator holding on that. You know, I always think that it's just like a puppet show. And then, yeah. you, know, you know, like before, I always think like an octopus, that there's always many tentacles. There is. Like yeah. the head. Now, how, um, maybe you could share about smart cities and green energy. Uh, there's a comment here that says green energy will cost child labor for the mining of materials needed for precious metals, needed for batteries and electronic components. And maybe it's this also a good 
topic because people uh, also get attracted to green revolution, green right. this, green that. But look what happened right now in what's that in in Texas? <laughs> right. Sorry, they're so I'm sorry for their inconvenience, but they may it may not be balance of whatever they were thinking about the windmills for their energy. Yeah. And now. Well, again, it's aligned to the sustainable development goals, of which if you look at them, there are 17. Only about five are actually related to the environment. So most of them are about managing people, which is interesting, but there is energy and air and water, but it's all about sensors. And so I would I would highly recommend people, there's a, there's a couple resources. Um, Wrong Kind of Green is a blog. It has a number of authors, including Corey Morningstar, who's great, uh, looking at the corporatization of the greening and the environmental movement. So again, not saying that the earth doesn't need healing and that there aren't problems, but actually pulling out who's behind the money behind a lot of these campaigns like Extinction Rebellion that are the same people who are causing the problems in the first place. Um, also, Clive Spash is a great economist and his background is in agroforestry. And so he was as he understood the carbon credit trading, that it was really a scam and that they would be doing things like destroying natural forests to put in um, monocrop forests for industri like industrial forestry programs. And so, you know, it's, it, it, again, you have to thread the needle because it's not to say that there aren't issues with energy or consumption or poisoning the planet or plastics. I mean, but at the same time, the, the people who are talking about the Green New Deal are the same ones telling everyone to wear disposable masks and put everything in plexiglass and plastic. You know, and Corey's done some really nice pieces on that, but that's actually inconsistent. If we if we look at actually being a good relative to the planet, the things that they are framing as green are not. And just like they need to give a child in Africa a tablet so that they can teach them on a tablet and get the data to fulfill these pay for success deals, they're actually developing sensor networks for trees in the dirt, in agriculture. They want to put sensors on everything. And you're right, the person is right that um, the lithium, the cobalt, the child, the, the mining programs, it's all very central because what they want is they want um, the devices to capture the data for the internet of things to to allow them to make those. But yeah, so I actually, I have a, an, a, a, a write up on the Green New Deal in my blog, Wrench in the Gears, that talks about, it's sort of, it was when all the stuff was coming out with Greta. And whenever you you see the mainstream media narrative, you know it's owned by a very small number of individuals to advance their interests, to advance largely corporate interests. So whenever anything pops up in the media all at once, forever, it's it's a construct. And so I don't have anything against Greta as a child, but Greta as a brand is meant to to sell impact investing and environmentalism, which will essentially mean, you know, put, tying the world down in in an internet of things satellite system so that the the rich can take their profit off of greening the world which i you know air quotes on that sort of greening but it's called like when what climate marchers need to know and is that a lot of the the systems of climate finance actually came out of warden as well so you know i'm living in the center of it <laughs> and and that's the piece like even with naomi klein you know she's been lifted up as as this you know person who's all about, you know, knowing about the green, you know, writing books about, you know, the green programs and, but she doesn't want people to know about the World Economic Forum and what's going on. And she dismisses all, all of these issues. And so the question is, 
To me, what is it like to be a good relative? Not to say that we're following the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which were developed for corporations, but what does it truly mean to be a good relative to the to the earth? And you know, I think if we were truly walking that walk, we would be handling ourselves very differently this past year because many of the things that has happened this past year are not at all about making the earth healthier. Hmm. I know, which is not to say people don't want that. People want to be the, do the right thing. They want to do the right thing, but they don't know about the impact management project. They don't know about the internet bodies. They don't know about, you know, there's a, there's a, a paper called uh, like Earth Beings and Machines of Trust, this guy Lohman in the UK, and they talked about decentralized autonomous organizations, which are companies made in computer code, DAOs, and that you could turn a forest into a company on, a, on computer code and have it hire sprayers and buy land and you know hire timber companies, just the forest in, in, in code. Mm -hmm. and, and that's like this corporatization of everything. And, you know, and it would be an industrial forest. It wouldn't be a web of relationship. It wouldn't be a, a sustainable ecosystem. It would be something else. It would just be, you know, timber waiting to happen. Hmm. I don't know, Some of the green programs, I have to say, are actually being used to dispossess indigenous people off of their land. Because what they're saying is that people cannot exist. And that's part of the public health issue that's going to come with... Um, the World Bank is that they have, they're going to frame that people are a threat to nature and nature is a threat to people with pandemic. And so everyone should keep separate, that all the people should live in mega cities, um, you know, and be all compressed and that we should not go to nature and that nature will just be the places where the rich people, you know, have their ranches, you know, away from everyone else. But the regular people should not have any relationship to the natural world. And it's because we're bad. And you know that's something that that Robin Wall Kimmerer has been spoken to really beautifully in her book, and I highly recommend it for people who are looking for something that is um, feels nice, like a, it's a balm for me. It's called braiding sweetgrass, and in it she talks about one of her graduate students doing work to talk about the impact of people on um, ecosystems and on the dissemination of this of sweetgrass, and that it actually in places where people were not, the population shrank because it needed people to preserve the ecosystem for it to thrive. And so that this ceremonial grass was actually in relationship to human culture. And it was quite beautiful. And, you know, the 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 people in the department was were sort of scoffing at the graduate student for wanting to look into this, that how could it be possible that people would be good for nature? But indigenous ways of knowing understand that that humans are part of that web of relationship and should not be just pulled out. And especially when these corporate, you know, powerful interests are using it to remove people who have longstanding relationships to geographies and natural systems from their land under the framing that humans are just a threat, you know. And when everything else that I hear or I read and, you know, can be so confusing to me because I didn't really know about Davos before. Yeah. Okay. Or the World Economic Forum. That what once I saw that last year um it, it just it, it's astoundingly like it's right on my face and i can't believe it but i always say to people go back to just the basic of understanding of indigenous people about nature about relationship and you know these two if 
but they didn't just do anything or nothing either. They had their education, they had their collaboration with among each other to protect themselves. And, you know, and, and that's what we always bring to the, the this transition. And I'm, I, I like to, I like to be able to share these topics to other people, but at the same time, not to bring more fear to them, but to remind them that, hey, you know, we are more than what they think we, we are. Very much. No, I think, I think very much. And if we were not so powerful, especially from a place of caring, you know, from a place of love for each other and, and the world, they wouldn't have to suppress us so hard. You know, they wouldn't have to work this hard to shoot us up with nano robotics and put us on the internet and turn us into cartoon characters if we weren't powerful, you know, if we if we weren't a threat to this program. So I, I, I'm not hopeless, but I, I do think that if you have a grounding in, in a cultural practice and a faith practice and in other, other people, that, that, that you'll be able to stand in the power. Like that's where we need to be situated is in that position. And, um, you know, and to, to do in small and big ways if we can connect with each other, you know, and, and connect with those histories and, and do, you know, readings. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lovely book that I, 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 I've read several times, but it's a children's book actually, it's called A Wrinkle in Time. And it was out in when I was a kid in the 70s mm -hmm. and Madeline Langle. And essentially it's it's set, you know, it, it brings up issues of math and physics and love and family. And, um, you know, the, the father and brother are trapped by this technology. And like the, the, the main foe is IT is actually. And in the end, mm -hmm. it's like the, the sister's love for her brother that prevails over this mechanical system. And so I do believe that is the place that we need to come from, but it takes practice to be there. And we can't be there every day. Like we're still human. We're we're broken. We're gonna make mistakes. We don't always have good days. And that's okay. You know, we're, it's a roller coaster that we're on. It's a marathon, really. It's like a marathon roller coaster. But as much as you can hold on to the good parts and and that that fellowship among other people and and with the world, I think that's that's the powerful part and it's you know as i said in utah um you know one of the presentations i gave was in a church and i said you know your tradition wherever you are i said in india it's people of sikh faith who are taking the stand primarily they're people who are standing in their traditions you know if it's if you're standing in whatever your faith practice is it's not that one is above the other it is that everyone needs to be in their own place in 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 that and that is how i think that the vibrations will well, manage because this is signals intelligence. That is the military part of this. This is wanting to reduce life into this controlled energy system, this dots and dashes. Um, you know, Michael Bloomberg, who's going to, who's a key player that doesn't get nearly enough coverage in this. He works with Bill Gates. His background was electrical engineering. So it really is signals. It's, it's vibrational signals, both for on their end, the military purposes and financial markets purposes and, and making their decisions. But on our end, that there is another, a more sacred intelligence, energetic intelligence that I think is going on and that we have to respect that. And then we have to, to truly believe that things are possible that may not on, in the material world seem possible. Oh, this is perfect. 
perfect ending for now, temporarily. Okay. <laughs> I, because you know, I you know, I will never get tired. I can hear you and all the rest talk the whole day, and you know, and do nothing but just say, just uh, how do you call it? Like like a sponge. I, think I lost you. Absorb absorb all of this i i can still see you alice okay so right. <laughs> you can hear me and at least i can still see you it's okay, okay. whatever it is it it is right it so, is yeah yeah um tell before you let them know where they can find you i i like to share also this quantum affirmation because what what's been helping me is like an affirmation card that i shuffle every day and I pick one of them. And today I pick, I said, what can I share with Allison? And I encourage people to, um, you know, do this like three times in the morning, in the e afternoon and in the evening. And sometimes I do this just before bedtime also. You know, words are powerful. Yeah. If, if the other side are using also words on us, because they know, yeah. they know also, mm -hmm. they know all that. So we have to do the same. So I found through flexibility, I choose to remain calm and collected in the face of unexpected interruptions and changes to my schedule. When life throws obstacles in my path to help me grow and change, I am up for the challenge. When life sends me sour lemons, I make lemonade. I choose to remain calm and collected in the face of unexpected interruptions and changes to my schedule. When life throws obstacles in my path to help me grow and change, I am up for the challenge. When life sends me sour lemons, I make lemonade. I choose to remain calm and collected in the face of unexpected interruptions and changes to my schedule. When life throws obstacles in my path to help me grow and change, I am up for the challenge. When life sends me sour lemons, I make lemonade. Isn't this just perfect? <laughs> well, Grace, I would consider you lemonade. <laughs> we have to do this if we have to go yeah. and walk this walk, you know, the friendships. So any more few words or and, and including your information, you know, please do share that to the audience. Sure. Well, again, my my uh, my blog is called Wrench in the Gears, Wrench like the tool and it's wrench in I N the the gears.com and i have a youtube channel um there's most of these interviews i have a playlist called other interviews it's just if you look up allison mcdowell youtube it's nothing to sort of really look at but there's a lot there's a lot of interviews there and some people i think have sort of said that i'm hard to understand or it's too complicated and and I'm like, you know what, whatever I have is worth is for sharing. So if you can say it in a different way, go ahead, like take it, do with what it's communal knowledge. And I'm kind of an immersion class, like a foreign language, they dump you in the immersion class. And some people love that <laughs> and some people don't. So if you if you if you are OK with it, like just spend some time listening to me. A lot of the themes reappear through the interviews and it starts to sink in. Um, and I would just like leave by telling pe people to um, a major influence for me has been John Trudell, who has since passed, but I think he was just a really prophetic voice for this time. He was a leader in the American Indian movement. He and his wife, Tina, who was killed in a house fire. Um, and if you, there's a documentary about his life, but if you if you look him up, look up some of his recordings, they're, they're really, you know, very, they help keep me grounded. And he, he sort of said that, that there is this predator energy out there 
to mine the being part of humans, right? The way I talked about the mining project. And that is up to those of us who can see it, those of us to use our intelligence that is given to us by the creator to, to put our minds and bodies against the machine. And he called it of tech, no logic, technologic. And so, and that that has been done before that's been done for generations. And so we pick up that task and we, we carry it forward for as long as we can, because you know, it's like the embers, even if we don't get to build the bonfire that we will we'll carry the embers forward. So, um, you know, if you're looking for some inspiration, he and Robin Mulkimmer are um, really inspirational. And, and I, I thank you for your time. It's been a great conversation. We'll have to do it again. Yes, please. And you are my inspiration because you're a mom, you're local, but you think global. <laughs> and also just uh, remembering, as you're saying, you know, like, uh, um, it is within us, within our culture, and then we could sustain ourselves. And that's like the, the solution begins in us. We won't yeah. let it happen and we don't wait too long. And every night and every day, Alison, I thank the creator, I thank the source. I said, please, thank you for letting me learn about podcasting. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Because I really just, you know, I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for letting this be that my guest trust me thank you I said, that's the best thing i can do right now so i say thank you allison and you know you're a beautiful presence you. and i thank our audience so if you like what you're hearing if you like what we shared to you please don't hesitate we need a lot of our um, soldiers soldiers on feet and technique on feet it used to be on feet but now soldiers in fingers <laughs> with little fingers and click it share copy paste so we'll use our fingers to share and this is quantum nurse and um in my language i say mabalos which is thank you mabalos mabalos, mabalos. that's great